Good morning, church family, and grace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 401. 401, and as always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider this text. Let's bow together. Our Lord, once more, we give you our thanks for the opportunity to gather together and to worship you and to learn from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us today. Help us to learn the lessons that you would have for us from Nehemiah chapter 5. Please drive the lessons down deeply into our souls. And Lord, please build a healthy and a vibrant and a gospel-shaped ministry here and one that is committed to maintaining its integrity over the long haul. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you are old enough to know the names of Jim and Tammy Baker. From 1974 to 1987, the Bakers hosted a TV program called the PTL Club. PTL standing for Praise the Lord. This program was so popular that it soon exploded into the PTL network. Well, in 1979, the FCC began looking into allegations that the money being raised by PTL was being misappropriated. And soon they discovered that Jim Baker had raised $350,000, which he said would go to foreign missions, but which actually went to build his amusement park called Heritage USA. That's when the IRS got involved. They discovered that Baker had used a whopping $1.3 million in donor funds, not for ministry purposes, but to enrich himself. Then in 1987, the IRS discovered that Jim Baker had paid a Miss Jessica Hahn $279,000 in hush money to cover up an alleged assault. At this point, the scandals became too much, and Jim Baker was forced to resign in disgrace. The following year, he was indicted on eight counts of mail fraud, 15 counts of wire fraud, one count of conspiracy. In 1989, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison, a sentence which was drastically reduced later on. Well, about this same time, uh, another televangelist, a man named Jimmy Swaggart, began to face some of his own scandals. In 1988, he was accused of consorting with a prostitute. For this, he was defrocked by his denomination, and this soon issued in a public and very tearful apology. But only three years later, he was caught doing exactly the same thing again. Then you might also remember the name Robert Tilton. He was also a televangelist and the pastor of the Word of Faith Family Church in Farmers Branch, Texas. And his ministry reached its peak in 1991. At that point, his TV program was airing in all 235 American television markets, and it was bringing in roughly $80 million a year. However, an ABC investigation discovered that Tilton's entire ministry was a grift. 
nearly all of the money that he was raising was not going to ministry purposes, but to himself. ABC discovered that he wasn't even reading his donor's prayer letters. The mail would come in, his staff would open the envelopes, take out the checks, promptly deposit them, and then throw the letters away. And ABC found entire dumpsters filled with unread letters. Well, Tilton's ministry collapsed soon after this discovery, and then he and his wife were divorced. Friends, I wish I could say that all the church scandals ended after Robert Tilton, but sadly, you know that is not the case. In just the last few years, scandals involving such well-known figures as Ravi Zacharias and Josh Duggar and Johnny Hunt and the entire executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention have all made national news doing tremendous damage to the cause of Christ and his church. And by the way, I do not blame the media outlets for the damage in Christ's reputation. I blame the ministries who refused to police themselves, those who allowed the internal corruption to take hold and to become open scandal. Friends, what we have learned through all of these scandals over the years is that the greatest threat to the church of Christ is not on the outside, it's on the inside. And what I mean by that is that the church's mission can continue no matter what's happening in the world around us. Threats, ridicule, jeers, persecution itself, these things cannot stop the forward march of Christ's church. But what can stop our progress is internal corruption. A corruption that spreads within a ministry like a cancer, killing it from the inside out. We cannot be stopped from the outside, but we can be stopped from the inside. And so, friends, now more than ever, if we would be used of God to achieve something great, we must safeguard our institutional integrity. I'll say it again. We must safeguard our institutional integrity. And if the time should ever come, and I pray to God that it does not, but if the time should ever come that wrongdoing should be committed here, then we must have the moral courage to face it head on, to confront the wrongdoer, to eliminate the wrongdoer, to put them out of the church, to repair the damage that has been done so that we can move forward in faithful gospel ministry. And this takes us to Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, just by way of review, for the past several weeks, we've been watching Nehemiah and his workers rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah has a real heart for the people of God, and he wants to see the whole nation revived. Nehemiah has understood that to revive the nation, he must first revive her capital city. And to revive that capital city, he must first rebuild her walls. And so that is what he's been concentrating his efforts on. And he's gotten all of the people of Judah to buy in to this vision. And all together, they've been working to rebuild the walls. And they've had great success at it. But of course, all of this success has come at great personal cost. And what we learn in today's chapter is that one of the costs has been to their own personal economic well-being. Now, some like Nehemiah were, were very, very wealthy, and so they were fine. 
But these other Israelite households, they were not faring so well because, you see, they were giving so much of their time and talent and energy and resources to the revitalization of Jerusalem that they were neglecting their own homesteads. And so the progress in Jerusalem was amazing, but back home they had not planted their crops, which means they'd not had an opportunity to grow any crops and to harvest the crops, so there is now a shortage of food and money afflicting all of the Israelite workers in Jerusalem. They've got a real problem on their hands. Poverty is striking many of the workers' households. They cannot supply the basic needs to meet uh, their family's requirements. And the work is being threatened by this. And unfortunately, all of this has also opened up an opportunity for a handful of very unscrupulous people to take advantage of the suffering workers. Specifically, in today's chapter, we're going to find that a small handful of extremely wealthy Israelites has decided not to help their impoverished brothers and sisters, but to exploit the situation for their own personal gain. They're going to use this opportunity to seize the hardworking builders' homes and their, their, their estates, their land, and even to, to take their sons and daughters as indentured servants. And so what we have here is a God-fearing group of workers being exploited by a wealthy few. And friends, this was a scandal of the highest order, and it threatened to rip apart the entire project from the inside. What we're going to see from our chapter today is how Nehemiah was made aware of the scandal and then what he did to resolve it. Let's begin in verse 1. Here's where we learn of the problem. Verse 1 reads, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. Okay, So prior chapters, we've seen all the progress being made on Jerusalem's walls. But now in chapter 5, it's clear the work is grinding to a halt. And now all of the Israelites... Are, are joining voices in this great outcry. This is an interesting word. In Exodus chapter 3, the very same word is used to describe the turmoil of the Jews under their enslavement to the Egyptian pharaoh. Well, now they're crying out again. And the seriousness of their plight is reinforced by the fact that the wives are also crying out. Now, up to this point in the book, the wives of these workers have really been in the background. But now, things are so bad at home that they have brought themselves to the forefront and they have joined their voices to the voices of their husbands and their brothers. And all together, they are crying out in pain over what is happening to them. And who are they crying out against? They're not a crying out against a pharaoh. And they're not crying out against Sanballat and Tobiah or against the Ammonites or the Ashdodites or the Arabs or all of the other hostile forces we've encountered in this book. No, they're not crying out against any of them. The verse says it was against their Jewish brothers. Their Jewish brothers their own fellow Israelites were oppressing them in the same way that the Pharaoh of Egypt had oppressed them 
in generations gone by. This was an, uh, a problem of internal corruption in the ranks of Israel. Some Israelites were financially exploiting other Israelites, and it was causing great damage to the revitalization project. Verses 2 through 5, we get a description of precisely what was going on. Verse 2 says, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. To help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So we can see what was going on here. Because all of these Jewish workers had been giving all of their time and energy and resources to building Jerusalem up, they had neglected their own homesteads. They had no food or income for themselves. And so they had to go out into the marketplace to buy what they needed. But here they had a problem. They had no money to buy the food that they needed. And so a small handful of very wealthy Israelites saw this situation and they said, this is something we can profit from. And so instead of looking at their, their beleaguered brothers and sisters and, and offering assistance, no, instead they said, oh, we can help you. You need money to buy food? We'll extend a loan to you. But they extended the loans at exorbitant interest rates, the kind of interest rates that nobody could ever pay back. And there were those who, who said, we need food. And so the wealthy Israelites among them said, okay, we will give you food, but in exchange for your mortgage, in exchange for your land, mortgage your property, and we'll extend this financial loan or we'll extend this food allowance to you. And there were others who were saying, we'll give you this loan, but in return, we want your sons and daughters as indentured servants, and they will work off the loan. This is what was going on in Israel at the time. A financial scandal of the highest order. And verse 7 specifies that it was the Jewish nobles and officials perpetrating this crime. The leaders of Israel, the very ones who should have been most concerned for the people's well-being, these were the ones exploiting their people. And you know, this was the same group of Jews that chapter 3 said, quote, would not stoop to help in the Lord's work. So these nobles and, and officials, when the, when the work of rebuilding the, the walls began, they would not help build the walls. They said, that's beneath us. We're not getting our hands dirty. And so it's been all of these other households that have done the work. And now all these households have impoverished themselves because of the devotion to the work. And so the nobles step in now and they say, oh, we can help you. And all it's going to cost you is your home, your field, your son, and your daughter. But we will help you. My friends, this was a moral outrage and it was one that the law of Moses explicitly addressed. Exodus 
22 verse 25 says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to them. You shall not exact interest from him. So the law said that if one of, of your fellow Israelites should fall into poverty, then you can loan them your goods and allow them to pay it back when they're able, if you wish. But the one thing you must not do is loan at interest to take financial advantage of their plight. You cannot do that. And then we have Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 37. It says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, and your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. So if your brother becomes impoverished, let him live with you. Let him live with you. Don't you dare extend him loans at exorbitant interest rates to take advantage of his plight. This is the law of Moses. And then Deuteronomy 23.20 says, You may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake. And so what was happening here in Israel was a direct violation of their most sacred laws. It was also a threat to the cohesion of the entire Jewish community because if left unchecked, the exploitation of the poor would lead to social unrest, which would lead to stoppage of the work, which would lead to the complete failure of Israel's revitalization efforts. This internal corruption had the potential to stop God's work. And all of this is a reminder to us that often the greatest threat to us will not come from the outside. It will come from the inside. Friends, our work here in this church today, it cannot be stopped by jeers and ridicule and threats and even persecution from outside of us. It cannot stop our work. Someone could burn this building down tomorrow and the next day our ministry could continue on. Because we don't need this building for ministry. Not ultimately. But you know what can grind everything to a halt? Internal corruption. If we have church members sinning against other church members, and if it's left unchecked so that it can grow worse and worse, so that the, the cancer spreads, that, that can end the ministry of our church. And friends, hasn't this really been the story of American Christianity for the last hundred or two years? The American church has not been undone by persecution. There's been no persecution to speak of. This is the freest land in the world. But the church has been undone by her own failure to maintain institutional integrity, by her failure to watch her life and doctrine closely. So, friends, the lesson here from Nehemiah 5 is that we must be vigilant to guard our integrity. We must, we must guard our integrity. And, friends, if it should ever happen that wrongdoing should, be, should begin to manifest here, 
then we must be prepared to face it head on. And this takes us to Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 through 13, where we learn of Nehemiah's response to this scandal. Verse 6 shows us his initial reaction to it. He writes, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So the news has finally reached Nehemiah that we have a major financial scandal afflicting the people of God. And his very first reaction is anger. Anger. Or we could call this righteous indignation. And friends, this was exactly the right first response to give. Friend, when you hear that somebody who professes to love God when you hear of them showing contempt for the laws of God and showing contempt for the people of God, and when you hear of one professing believer abusing another believer, causing them harm for their own gain, that should make you angry, righteously angry. But then, friends, the, the next question is, what are you going to do with that anger? Okay, it's right to feel it, but how, how do you... How do you resolve it? Well, of course, when you're feeling that kind of anger, you have a couple of options available. One option is just to do nothing. Do nothing. Sadly, this is the response of many institutional leaders. An urgent matter is brought to their attention, and it makes them angry. But then the anger gets overwhelmed with fear. And they start to fear the power of the wrongdoers. They fear the the loss of the money they contribute. Or they fear the, the position of influence within the church that they hold. And so they allow that anger to subside and the anxiety to rise. And they say, I will do nothing. Let's just hope it takes care of itself. Maybe it'll all just go away and everything will be okay. Friends, that is the response of all too many leaders. But you know, that doesn't make the problem go away. It only makes the problem worse. It allows the crisis to fester until it explodes into a public scandal. Do nothing in the face of internal wrongdoing in a church, and it will lead to church splits. It will lead to to pastoral resignations. It will lead to to public scandals that hit the newspapers. And friends, I have seen these things happen with my own eyes. I have seen church leaders made aware of just gut-wrenching, terrible wrongdoings. And they did nothing. Nothing. Because they were scared of the people that were being accused. And the church was destroyed as a result. Nothing left of the church but just a little shadow of its former existence. Friends, if you become aware of a wrongdoing and you feel the righteous anger within you, don't suppress that feeling. Do something else instead. Do what Nehemiah did. Do what leaders are supposed to do. Look at verse 7. Nehemiah says, back to verse 6, I was angry when I heard their outcry and their words. Then verse 7, and I took counsel with myself. So he got angry, then he took counsel with himself. That means that he, he took that righteous anger and he harnessed it 
and then he channeled it into righteous action. He thought about what the right action would be, and then he took the action. Friends, this is what a true leader does. When they're made aware of a growing scandal, it makes them righteously indignant, and then they take counsel with themselves, and they follow a righteous course of action to remedy the problem. Look what Nehemiah does now, verse 7. He says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now, this was a legal violation. They had broken the law of Moses by taking financial advantage of the poor. And so Nehemiah's righteous response is to follow the legal process. He presses charges against them. And he goes on. He lays out the charges. He says to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And then he writes, and I held a great assembly against them. So he presses charges, then he lays out the charge. You are exploiting your fellow Israelites. Something the law says you must not do. And he did this in the presence of everyone. Now friends, you understand that a personal offense needs to be resolved privately. But a public offense needs to be resolved in the public. If someone has sinned against the public, then he needs to stand before the public and be held to account. And so that is what Nehemiah does here. And notice he is standing against the nobles and officials, the people with all the money and all the power. But this right needs to be or this wrong needs to be made right. And so he sets all of those considerations aside, and he confronts them in front of all. Verses 8 through 10, Nehemiah details the nature of this moral outrage. He says to them, we, talking about himself and all the other Jews in Jerusalem, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So he says, look, me and all the other Jews in Jerusalem, we're giving all of our time and energy and money to bringing the captives back, to liberating the Jewish people. But you guys, as soon as we bring them back, you're re-enslaving them. You're making their sons and daughters indentured servants. You're taking away their land, their homes. We have to buy them back from the foreign nations, and now we have to buy them back from you. And then verse 9, excuse me, second half of verse 8, he says, and they were silent and could not find a word to say. That's because they were convicted. They knew they were in the wrong. Now verse 9, so I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? So now Nehemiah frames this as a spiritual problem. Look, you guys, you thought this was just some shrewd business move. Here are people who need money, they need food. Well, you can provide it and you can make yourself richer in the process. He says, no, it wasn't a shrewd financial move. This was sin against God. You showed contempt for God, for his law, for his people. You have committed a great sin Ultimately, what he says here is true of all sin, isn't it? Every time you and I sin against God, 
We are showing contempt for God. We're showing that we don't believe He is the kind of being who deserves the final say in our lives. We're showing contempt for His law, and when we hurt His people, contempt for His people. We're showing no concern for the reputation of His church. This is what sin is. It's what sin does. And so Nehemiah confronts these nobles and officials with these truths. And then verse 10, he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. He says, look, you did have another option available to you. If you couldn't bring yourself to give in charity, you at least could have loaned and then told the people, look, when you're in a better position, you can repay us. You could have done that. Then there would have been no loss, no gain, but no loss to you either. You could have done that, but they didn't. They chose the worst possible option here. Friends, what these nobles and officials had done was a great sin. They were doing the work of God's enemies for them. They were showing contempt for God's name and God's reputation. They were forsaking lawful options for helping the poor in favor of law-breaking. They were setting themselves against their own brothers and sisters and in the process threatening to bring this entire revitalization effort down. They were going to destroy the work of God from within doing what their enemies could not do. Destroy the work themselves. That's what was going to happen. And so Nehemiah proposes a solution, second part of verse 10. He says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Here's the charge. Here's why it's so serious. Here's the solution. Let's stop charging people interest. And then verse 11 He goes on, he says, Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Give it all back. Give it all back. In the New Testament, this is called showing the fruits of repentance. See, it's not enough just to give lip service to your regret. You have to say, I'm sorry, but then to keep everything that you took wrongfully. That's not repentance. So Nehemiah says, look, you need to forsake this taking of interest and to show that you really, truly have godly sorrow for what you have done. You need to give everything you've taken wrongfully back to them. Give them their houses, their fields, all the interest that you've earned on their money. Give it all to them. Everything has to go back. Look how they respond, verse 13. Excuse me, verse 12. They say, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Best possible resolution. They've been confronted publicly with their sin, and they've responded in repentance. Notice what Nehemiah does next. He says, And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. So Nehemiah is very grateful that they have promised to do this, but he's not going to take them at their word. Okay, they've already proven themselves to be an untrustworthy group. So he says, okay, that sounds great. Let's bring in the priests, and right here, right now, you're going to make a vow. And you're going to make it in front of God. You're going to make it with these priests. You're going to make it in front of the entire congregation of Israel. You're going to vow that you're returning everything you have taken. And then verse 13, Nehemiah says, I also shook out the fold of my garment, and I said, 
So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. So Nehemiah pronounces a curse on anyone who would break their vow. A scandal arose in Israel on this day. Scandal that threatened to bring the entire nation down. But Nehemiah, as a godly leader, confronted it head on. And it didn't matter to him that his opponents here were rich and powerful. It had to be dealt with, and so he took it head on. He laid out the charges. He did so in public. He detailed the nature of their sins. He called them to repentance. And when they said they did repent, he outlined a process for reconciliation. And they followed the process. The end of verse 13 says, And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people, that is, the, those unscrupulous, wealthy Israelites, they did as they had promised. My friends, if our church is to maintain its moral integrity over the long haul, it's going to require a few things of us. It'll require a spiritual zeal that does not diminish, and righteous indignation towards sin, which never grows cold. And it's going to take church leaders, and here I'm preaching to myself, it's going to take church leaders who take credible accusations of wrongdoing seriously and who are ready to do battle royal against the wrongdoers, no matter how much money they give and how powerful their position is in the church. And it's going to require church leaders who are willing to lead by example, to establish a healthy culture in the churches they lead, leaders who are willing to walk the talk. This is what we see in verses 14 through 19. I'll not have time to go through those verses with you. But what we find in these verses is Nehemiah setting a new institutional culture. One based on giving to the poor instead of taking. One, one that emphasizes volunteerism rather than having a transactional view of every relationship. He sets a new culture for Israel. We need leaders willing to set that culture. My friends, to conclude... Let me say, for the glory of God and the advancement of His church, let us commit to this together too. Let it never be said of us that we allowed internal corruption to bring a halt to the Lord's work. Let us care about integrity. And if it should ever be threatened, let us be committed to facing it head on as God would have us to do. And let's pray together now. Lord, we thank You for the time that You've given us. We thank You for the wisdom that Your Word provides to us. We pray that You would protect us from internal corruption. Lord, may it never happen here, financial or personal or otherwise. May it never rise up here. But if it does, help us to be courageous. Help us to face it. Help us to cleanse our ministry of it. And then, Lord, would you see fit to allow our ministry to continue on in strength because we did the right thing. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.